We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. Good morning. Such a beautiful day today. Hope we all get outside and enjoy God's creation. A few weeks ago, a group of us from Park Street were in Athens, Greece, serving dinner to about 30 or 40 refugees. Many came from Iran or Kurdistan or Afghanistan, and some of them spoke English. And one of our team members sat down at dinner one night, chatting with an Afghan refugee, probably in his 40s, had glasses, and he sort of opened up and said, you Christians speak a lot about a God of love, but your Bible is just as bad as the Quran. Just as bad as the Quran. The Old Testament is full of murder and blood and slaughter. And the New Testament, what about that parable where the king comes to slaughter his enemies and burn the city? Is that what your Jesus is like? Is that what your God is like? Well, how would you respond to that? What would you say to someone who's read parts of the Bible? Well, our friend, our colleague there, pressed his case and and continued to engage in this dinnertime conversation to say to one of the members of our team, do you live in a house? And he demurred and said, well, yes. And the refugee said, well, I don't live in a house. So, of course, you believe in a God of love. I live in a dilapidated building, an empty carcass of a building here in Athens. How would you respond to that? Well, we learned that this Afghan refugee had been a fighter with the Taliban. The Taliban had killed his father and his brother. He escaped to Athens. And it begs the question, how do you communicate the gospel to someone who's been traumatized and triggered by religious fanaticism? or nearer to home, closer to home, how do we communicate the gospel to someone in our neighborhood who perhaps have been traumatized or triggered by abuse? Or someone in our office who's an ardent atheist? Or someone in our community who is very keen on a particular sect or new age movement? Or someone who's at college who has given up on any belief in God? How do we communicate the truth of the gospel in these different contexts? Well, our passage today gives us this vignette, this pastiche, a portrait of what the gospel was like in one context, in Berea, in a synagogue in northern Greece. It wasn't the main city in Macedonia. It was perhaps uh, still an important city and perhaps not the first city Paul had on his mind when he was called to go to Europe, from Asia to Europe, and yet God used it in a powerful way. So I want us to remember the context for our passage, the synagogue. It's actually a fluid term. It can mean a variety of things. It can mean a building, an institution. It can mean a group of Jews. It can mean a gathering. Paul was in the synagogue in Berea. And the most important thing for us 
as 20th century, 21st century readers to appreciate being in the synagogue in Berea is the scrolls. The scrolls, because that the Torah, the law and the prophets, often kept in an ornate cabinet called the Ark of the Torah, the Torah Ark, often facing or oriented towards Jerusalem. That was the primary centerpiece of the synagogue. And the purpose of the synagogue was to read from the scrolls and to teach the law. If the Torah was to be read in Hebrew and there were Greek speakers or Aramaic speakers or Syriac speakers or other speakers, it would be translated so that they could understand, to hear the word of the law and the prophets and to be taught the commandments of God. We get a snapshot of what a first century religious service would have been like, which Luke gives us in Luke chapter 4. If you recall, in Luke 4, our Lord comes into the synagogue. He is handed the scrolls. He's standing up. He unrolls the scrolls. He reads from the scrolls. He rolls them back, gives them back to the attendant. He's standing, and then he begins to teach. And in the first century synagogue, the reading of the law, the teaching of the law, their songs and benediction was all part and part of what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to belong to the synagogue. It's in that context that Paul, the apostle, proclaims the good news. And I'd like to focus on this very brief and short, simple passage on two groups of people. And look at these two groups of people and then consider for ourselves two implications or two encouragements in our context of mission today. So the first group of people in verse 11 and 12 are the Bereans. We read, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. More noble doesn't necessarily mean more aristocratic, although it could. More likely it means they were more hospitable their character, their moral values, were such that they would be open to these visitors from outside their country. And as we read here, they were reading, uh, receiving the word with all eagerness. There was a sort of emotional chemistry. There was a vitality to what are these visiting speakers going to say about our sacred scriptures that we hear every Sabbath. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, Paul said, you received the word in much affliction with joy, with joy of the Holy Spirit. So there's an emotional component to their reception, open-mindedness to this message. But not only are they receptive, they're critical. They're critical thinkers. We read that they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The word they're examining It's like a forensic research. Imagine a lawyer. He's got the data, she's got the data, and then she has to prove the case. Or a scientist with data proving the case. Scanning it, sifting it, scrutinizing it. It's an exacting process. And Paul himself had reasoned with them in Thessalonica. We read in verse 3 that Paul reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Christ. But reading this passage, 
is a bit puzzling. What are these things? What are the scriptures cited? Yes, Luke references scripture three times in this vignette. And yet, what are the scriptures that he's referring to? What are these things? Luke appears content with this summary statement, the scriptures, the word of God, to validate his point that is being made here. In Luke 24, which we had read, our Lord himself says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus is it written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So Luke's biblical theology could be summarized quite straightforwardly as in the Old Testament, there's a Messiah who's going to come. He's going to, he's going to suffer and he's going to be glorified. And second of all, this message of the Messiah is going to be proclaimed to all the nations. And Almighty God, Luke is telling us, Almighty God who began this work in Jerusalem, began this work in Palestine, is continuing that same work here in Europe. This first chapter of the gospel in Europe. And now before their very eyes, God is unfolding his plan. We know that the Greeks were big into philosophy. They had Aristotle and Plato and a whole number of philosophers. And it's quite interesting as you look at Paul's defense of the gospel, communication of the gospel, that he is using a logical framework in his messages. He argues basically three points, a sort of classic syllogism. Main point, the Messiah must suffer and be glorified. And God's promises to David and the prophets must be fulfilled. First point. Second point, Jesus lived, died, resurrected. Minor premise. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth. He uses a very logical framework to argue his case. We see that in Acts 13 in the sermon to, at city in Antioch, where Paul declares of this man, David's offspring, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then verse 32, Acts 13, and we bring you the good news that what God promised our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. We know that the law and the prophets were read every Sabbath, and yet, he says in Acts 13, 27, they didn't recognize it. And here now in Berea, there's a challenge that they had been expecting the Messiah but now Paul was urging them, reasoning with them, not just to expect, but to acknowledge the Messiah had in fact arrived. And even more than that, that they were to obey this risen Lord whom God had appointed as the judge of all. You see, the resurrection was the clincher. That was the pivotal event, the linchpin of this redemptive message of God, all hinged on the resurrection, and now the resurrected Lord summons them to obedience and surrender and following him. And these Berean Jews, this open-minded, receptive, and yet critical group examined, and many, many believed. Recently, one of our Bible translators, Jim Zavara, 
she told me about the story of a Muslim man who had examined the scriptures in Central Asia. This was a university professor of linguistics and literature, a humble and a kind man. And one day he was at the university and his wife was there as well and there were some visitors to his university looking for volunteers to help with a Bible translation. And his wife heard, overheard this conversation and said, yeah, my husband, he's a linguist. I'm sure he'd be happy to help. Well, it turns out that this professor was, in fact, invited onto the team, a Muslim linguist, to help with this translation project. And he examined the scriptures. In fact, his job description was to check the translation of Genesis, Psalms, and the New Testament. Well, this team would meet together for meals and fellowship and friendship, and they would often pray together. But the pre and the professor started to pray with the team, but he was just praying. He didn't pray in, in, in Jesus' name or something like that. But then after a while, he began to pray in Jesus' name at the end of his prayers. And one of the members of the team, uh, one of the ladies, asked him a question. Why have you started to pray in Jesus' name? Do you believe in Jesus now? And then he responded in a typical Central Asian fashion. He said, I am in this way now. I am in this way now, meaning, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to follow him now. And in fact, he'd been a secret believer for many years. And over many months, he had read, in fact, the whole Bible, reading it out aloud with the translation team, all 66 books. He had examined the scriptures. And today, he's giving part of his academic career to publish academic materials that show that Jesus is not in conflict or foreign to their Central Asian culture. They had examined the scriptures. He had examined and believed. Well, there's a second group here, the Thessalonians, in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Paul had publicly proclaimed the risen Lord as the Messiah who was to come. And there's an irony here in the language that Luke uses to describe this stirring. When he says they were stirring up the crowds, it's the same word that was used earlier that the Jews used against the apostles, that they came here to Thessalonica to stir us up. But now they're doing the very same thing in Berea. There's a sort of hypocrisy about their accusation. And then the word that is used for agitating the crowds is the very same word that was used in chapter 16, verse 26, when an earthquake shook the very foundations of the Philippian jail. Berea also had an earthquake, an incitement by the Jews. And so we see this pathway of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. On that pathway, there are earthquakes, there are twists and turns. It's a kind of turbulence that happens when the world is turned upside right. Well, these Jews were jealous of Paul, and who, who claimed that Jesus was the Christ. A sort of rage that we've seen earlier in the book of Acts. In Acts 7.54, the Jews, in rage, approached Stephen when he was stoned to death. And in Mark 15.10, the chief priests, out of envy, delivered Jesus up to be crucified. And these Jews came to Berea because they wanted to shut it down, but they couldn't rely on the law from Thessalonica because the law didn't apply in this other city. So basically what you do, 
you bring the law into your own hands. You use violence. And throughout the book of Acts, we see the progress of the gospel and the reasons, the objections that so many give against the gospel while they're hostile to the gospel. Last week, we saw the loss of finances or prejudice. This week, we're seeing jealousy, false charges. Next week, in the sermon in Athens, we see philosophical arrogance or unbelief. And throughout the book of Acts, we see all manner of different reasons why people reject the gospel. And throughout history, there have been so many causes for not believing the gospel. One of the perhaps most famous ones is Engels and Marx, arguing that freedom is only possible if religion is abolished. Well, I guess the proof is in the pudding, looking at Marxist and communist regimes over history to see whether freedom flourishes. And there are many other causes that people use or reasons that people use against the gospel. Could it be in philosophy or culture or society? And so it's not surprising, perhaps, after this incident in Berea that some of the new Berean believers would not make it. They wouldn't persevere. Luke had explained in Luke 8.13 that when the seed is sown on rock, there are those who hear the word and receive it with joy, but when a time of testing comes, they fall away. They have no root. But there's good news in this passage, too. We know that Sopater the Berean in Acts 20, verse 4, did persevere in his faith, perhaps the good soil on, on the soil, on the ground, holding fast in a good and honest heart, bearing fruit with patience. So yes, the closed-minded fanaticism, the intolerance of this one group did impact the gospel. And yet, ultimately, God's purpose for the world, for the entire ancient world, was accomplished as the gospel did eventually land in Rome. And we see at the end of the book, without hindrance, Paul is declaring the gospel. So God's mission always occurs in a context. And, and Luke is giving us, in the book of Acts, a series of vignettes to show us how the gospel crosses these cultural and social and economic barriers. Yes, there are earthquakes along their way, there are twists and turns, but God is faithful to his message. You may remember in Acts 14 when Paul is preaching in Lystra, he's preaching to pagans who want to sacrifice to him, and he declares God the creator. And then in the next section of this narrative, we see Paul in Athens where he's with the philosophers, and he declares the resurrected Lord who is the judge. In neither case does he rely on the scriptures. But here in Berea, he does. It's a different context. He applies the scriptures there. And so the question for us is, what is your context for mission today? What context has God put you in, and how will you engage? How will you communicate the gospel in your context? What gospel conversations will you have where you are at? And there are two words that I want to leave with us as we consider this brief passage. The first one is dialogue. You see, Paul didn't rely on cliches. He didn't rely on proof text. He dialogued. He wrestled and argued with the Jews, and it was an entirely biblical approach to mission. The Jewish people are still with us. Perhaps we have some, we, we have some Jewish guests with us this morning or those who are related to the Jewish family in some capacity, and that the gospel must continue to be communicated to the Jewish people. Yes, the context today in the 21st century is very different 
from the first century Judaism in Greece. And yet that necessity of dialogue remains with us, of dialoguing with the Jewish people, with the scriptures, the law and the prophets. And there are many resources to help us to look at the reliability and the accuracy of these scriptures. And in the bulletin we have today some references to the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures of resources that we can find out about the historical reliability by K.A. Kitchen and F.F. Bruce about the validity of these scriptures, the intellectual respectability of the scriptures that we can use or our friends can engage with if they're Jewish. Well, there's another group. There are groups of questioners, agnostics, skeptics. What questions are people really asking today? They may have grown up in the church but stopped going at college or after college. Maybe that describes you. Maybe religion has failed you and you've never returned to God. Or you're asking, isn't there more to life than this? Or how can I really be satisfied? Or does science and technology replace my need for God? How do we respond and wrestle and dialogue with these questions, live questions, of those today? Well, I think of one young scientist who was baptized here at Park Street over Easter. A scientist, a graduate student at one of the universities, who said this about her own wrestling and dialogue with science. While science offered an explanation for the nature and the origin of morality, there was nothing to tell us how we ought to act in light of these truths. Forcing these doctrines to their logical end would describe the purpose of life as being simply to reproduce, where morality is just a tool to gain friends and mates. This led me down a deeper rabbit hole of reading, and I started to read about the violence of 20th century history, and sought out authors who could explain our immense capacity for cruelty. And so I found a few writers who I felt had gotten something right about humanity, who understood human nature, at least as well as the best scientists and historians of today. These authors, like Bostoevsky, as an example, converged on, converged on the same conclusion about the earthliness and animalistic fallen nature of humankind. They had held up a higher standard for humanity, a call to something better, a call to the existence of a higher ideal that superseded our biological wiring. There's an encouragement to wrestle with the issues of our day. And there are many resources available. Perhaps it's to do with science. Francis Collins, the American geneticist, head of the Human Genome Project, has produced some incredibly helpful resources or if there are philosophical cases and so on that people are concerned with. Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, has produced some remarkable material to deal with some of the deeper philosophical reasons for malaise in Western culture. Or it could be dialoguing in a group, an alpha group, or an inquiry group that we have here at Park Street from time to time. Or cultural questions, like Rebecca McLaughlin and her work here based in, in, in Boston. So there are many ways that we can engage in dialogue, and perhaps some of the dialogue and the declaration will not meet with a friendly uh, response. Perhaps there are enemies of the gospel that we feel that, it, how do we respond with them? But I think the scriptures help us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, to not repay evil with evil, reviling for reviling, with gentleness and respect to communicate the good news of the gospel. So dialogue and declaring the good news. That's one way that we can respond. The second one is a little different. 
When we come to church on a Sunday morning, we do not park our brain in the parking lot or on the street. We bring it with us. And we're not brains on a stick. We'd have more that's going on in our lives. And yes, we as believers will have questions and we need to wrestle with those questions. And yet there's something else going on in mission. Something I think that Paul himself illustrates and models for us. He knew the scriptures, he knew the law, he knew the Psalms, and he would delight in the scriptures. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the instruction of the law. And the Psalms speak about one thing in Psalm 42, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that is what I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his holy temple. Seek, me, seek ye my face, thy face, Lord, do I seek. There is this undergirding of mission, not only the intellectual aspect, but this desire, this level of appetite, of spiritual hunger for God himself that underlies genuine mission that comes from a delight in God, a delight in his law, a delight in who he is in himself, and that an overflow from that comes in mission. Because if that desire for God himself, seeking first the face of God, is not there, then something else will replace it in our mission. And we come, become attached or influenced by some other force. Throughout the 20th century, we've seen the devastating and the toxic effects of something else hijacking mission of nationalism in the 20th century. Both in the Catholic Church, one can think of the papal alliance with Mussolini in Italy, or then the Protestant evangelical church in Germany in the Nazi era where uh, Ludwig Müller was the Bishop of the Reich of the German evangelical church. We can see the devastating effects where the mission of God is hijacked by another influence or agenda. And yet, there are so many beautiful examples of where the desire for the Lord, as Paul had a desire and a thirst and a hunger for him, overflowed in his delight in the revelation in the, the Torah of God and overflowed into mission. I think of one believer from the fourth century in what is today modern Turkey who was at a loss for words to describe his approach to the revelation of God. He said, anyone who encounters scripture should not suppose that this one single one of its riches he has found is the only riches, only richness to, to exist. Rather, he should realize that he himself is only capable of discovering that one out of many riches will ex which exist in scripture. A thirsty person rejoices because he has drunk. He is not grieved because he's proved incapable of drinking the fountain dry. Let the fountain vanquish your thirst. Your thirst should not vanquish the fountain. Give thanks for what you have taken away, and don't complain that there's an abundance that's left over in the scriptures. What you have taken off with you is your portion, and what is left behind is your inheritance. The Apostle Paul delighted in the instruction of the Lord. He desired the presence of God in his life. This Christian from the fourth century similarly delighted in the presence of God and was in, in, entranced by the revelation of God, and that led to mission. In that context, it went east through modern-day Iraq and Iran, through Central Asia, up through China to Mongolia by the eighth and ninth centuries. But here we have this mission from Asia to Europe, motivated and resources, resourced by the same dynamic. May we, too, 
in the gentleness and respect that we have for our neighbors, have our own gospel conversations, have our own dialogue with those who have real questions about the faith that we cherish. Let us bow our heads and pray. Lord, you said, wait in Jerusalem till you have been clothed with power. May your power take us up and drive us out in love for you and love for your world, that we may spend ourselves in mission here in Boston and to the ends of the earth. Amen.